This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. All right, man. So, yeah, let's just start at the beginning. Where you come from? Dive in. Um, it was a warm, stormy night. James and Janice were uh, feeling the vibe. And had the Al Green playing on the on the platter and the incense burning. Um, now I'm from uh, from South Central Los Angeles, inner city kid, LA native. Um, moved to San Gabriel Valley very shortly thereafter. West Covina, La Point Theory, familiar with LA, like 20 minutes east of South Central. Just kind of grew up in and around all of just the just the LA. Propaganda is a rapper and a spoken word artist. His lyrics and poetry have an edge that stand out in the world of hip-hop in general, and Christian hip-hop in particular. He's clear-minded, prophetic, sometimes angry, and just as often, joyful and celebrative of the life he lives and the world he lives in. I bleed California, you know what I'm saying? Like, I always say, like, the city was like my father. I mean, it's not like I didn't have my, well, yeah, not like I didn't have my dad, but like the city was like a third parent. From a Christian standpoint, I feel like LA makes you wrestle with things that the rest of the country doesn't wrestle with until five, six, seven years later. I think in a lot of ways, the environment just kind of pushes you to think through what you believe. So you you learn to sort of see yourself as a member of a bigger like community, you know what I'm saying? So there's like this like sort of us kind of mentality, you know what I'm saying, that kind of comes from that. And then the grit of just being in the, the backdrop of like just the gang life and like, you know, there's just a certain grit and fortitude and like love for community, love for self, love for like those that are suffering, you know what I'm saying? Like you really just feel like they, you know, they're one of you. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him with everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on. It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. My guest today is the rapper, poet, Propaganda. We'll talk about how he found his way into his work, about his deep roots in L.A., his writing practice, his values as an artist. We'll talk about his family, about race and the church, and about suffering and pain, and about what happens when one of your poems sparks a theological controversy. So stay with us. Fell in love 
to hip hop real young. Um, just the backdrop of LA and pretty, uh, pretty gang infested, but like, you know, Venice Beach and breakdancing and skateboarding and all that stuff, you know, it was just my, it was my backyard. That backyard not only drew him to a particular kind of culture, but it set a high standard for his work as an artist. I think as an artist, it's kind of like they, they say about like New York, like if you make it in New York, you make it anywhere. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of like that with LA too. It's like the guy like parking your car is probably like a shredding guitar player that like, that dude just, you know, on his off times when he's not in the studio, he just parks car. But like, yeah, yeah, that guy played for Metallica. Like he did all the studio sessions, you know what I'm saying? But he's just, he just parks cars, you know what I'm saying? So like, there's such excellence that like, there's no, if you're going to do, if you're going to do art, like if you're going to do music or anything, like you got to come with it. In his family growing up, faith was complicated, but it grounded him and it drew him to Jesus nonetheless. I know my parents became believers when I was in elementary school, at least my mom did, you know, uh, and, you know, my father was there, but like, you know, he was still processing through a number of things. So it was a considerable amount of sin going on in my house, but we knew Jesus was Lord, you know what I'm saying? In in a sense, you know what I'm saying? And, um... I want to say junior high was like around the time that like, I think it like somewhere between like sixth and eighth grade where it was like, okay, yeah, I'm a believer. My father was Southern, you know, say from Dallas. So it's like black Southern family. Of course, of course you're Christians, you know what I'm saying? But like, they're also from the hood, you know what I mean? They struggled. You know, we had all of the same sort of things in our house, you know what I mean? My mother was from DC, you know, Northeast DC, same thing. Like my granddad, my granddad drove a taxi cab and, but that didn't feed all nine kids. It was like, he ran the numbers, you know what I'm saying? They did like card games, you know, little, you know, the neighborhood like card sort of gambling. I was at my grandma's house, you know what I'm saying? So for us, it was like crimes of survival, you know what I'm saying? So like, if you can put a hashtag on, or a, a, a asterisk on, on criminal, you know, there's, that's a, it's a certain type of criminal. Like these are like, we, I'm just, just trying to survive, you know what I mean? So like, it, for us, it was like that was kind of the environment, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But yeah, like junior high, I think I became yeah. a believer. Yeah. So you're in this context that's sort of gang-heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get caught up in that world? Or, or if not, what kept you um, out of it? Well, I grew up, I was in a Mexican neighborhood. So like my yeah. block was like, that was a Latino gang. So like you can't, I, it's not an option, you know what I'm saying? Um, and my uh, extended family that was like sort of involved in like, you know, kind of the black gang life, like I just... I didn't live on their street, so it was it's just not an option, you know what I'm saying? But even though my grandmother did, I there was like a few like real moments when like, you know, the little boys they tell you you're not supposed to go play with. Like my grandma don't, they don't like you playing with the boys across the street. And if you've seen the Gridiron Gang, that movie that the Rock did a few a little little while back about the juvenile hall and like the football team, like that team, some of those characters were like kids from my street, like that were a part of that program and on that first team, you know what I'm saying? So like yeah, I, I remember, like, following them dudes over to their house so I could play Nintendo, knowing full well, like, Grandma said, you're not supposed to go play with them. And then, you know, then they go around the corner to the Golden Ox. That was, that's a burger joint in, you know, just inner city L.A. Go around the corner, you you know, you cut through the alley. You know, we out there, like, boxing, like, having fun. And then, do like, and, you know, you get clocked in the face, and all of a sudden it's like, yo, this isn't fun. You know what I'm saying? But uh, that's just what boys do. You know, we go around the corner, and that's when, like, the big kids met them at the alley because they were about to go like, they not, we're not going to just get burgers. We're going to go burgers and rob a few people. We got some work to do. And that's when I finally kind of realized like, this is like, y'all signed up for this. You know what I'm saying? I was like, man, I'm going to go ahead and slide back to grandma's house. So I think it was, I think that reality of like, yo, I could like really, 
I could really get hurt out here. I think that was a light bulb for me to be like, man, I don't need to be out here like this. And then I and I just fell in love with hip hop. Like it just was so much cooler to see dudes like, you know, down at Venice Beach kind of spinning on their heads. You know what I mean? I'm like murals, the 10 and the 50, and the 10 and the 101 on the freeway, like at the LA River, man, seeing all these like graffiti murals. I was like, you're in the, like I said, you're in the backseat driving to your auntie's house. You see all these things like, wow, they're larger than life. And I was like, I whatever that is, that's amazing. I want to be a part of that. Prop found a love for the whole culture of hip-hop, its aesthetics, its attitude, and its visual culture. And it created in him a sense of calling as an artist. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to be an artist. Like, I went to school for illustration, you know, in intercultural studies. So I was always interested in, like, sociology and stuff. Yeah, very young, I was like, I want to do art. It was while he was studying art in college that he met his wife. At the time, she was at UCLA, and I'm like, you're way out of my league. I'll, <laughs> I'll go to a state school, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, one of the things I've noticed, in, you know, just on your sort of your social media presence, you really, you really celebrate your family. You really celebrate yeah. the, the cultural diversity of your family. Uh-huh. Yeah, man, it kind of turns out. Most say my, so my wife is first-generation Mexican. She was born in, in L.A., area called Huntington Park, and then she was sent back to Acapulco to live with her grandmother until fourth or fifth grade, and then she came back, and her siblings you know, kind of came back one by one. So, yeah, so she lived in a part of L.A. It was called Huntington Park, which was like— it's 100% Mexican, you know what I mean? That section of Los Angeles. Yeah, she said there was, at her high school, there was one black person and she was half black. But when she came back, her elementary school was actually in Watts. So like, she had this like, kind of weird where like all of her television, all of the news, everything, weather channel was all Spanish at home. You know what I mean? And then she went to school like in Watts, you know? So like, it was this, this whole like black experience for her that was so foreign. But what's funny is like the part of South Central I was in, the next like major like street block was like the border between South Central and Huntington Park. You know what I mean? So we really like, we actually grew up like 10 minutes from each other, just didn't know, you know what I'm saying? Because- Because those worlds didn't- Yeah, there's no reason, yeah. why? Like when I say it's 100%, like the signs are in Spanish, you know what I'm saying? Like the, 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 the stores, the billboards, it's all in Spanish. Like, so it's just, cause that's just, that's just the area, you know? And plus you gotta know your sort of, your map boundaries for like, you know, sort of gang life, like, we don't go over there. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what it was. Um, so with her, sort of the black experience was something that she kind of saw either the news, you know, like like the L.A. riots, like the Rodney King stuff. She saw that on the news, you know what I'm saying? Even though she's in L.A., but that's like, that's a black thing. And that's very different. And her Mexican experience is very different than Mexican-Americans, which is like Chicanos. They're like third and fourth generation. So that's, that's a different narrative for her, for, than her, you know what I'm saying? And that's the Mexican I knew. I knew Chicanos. I knew like, you know, third and fourth generation Mexicans that spoke Spanish, but it was like a broken Spanish, like street Spanish, Spanglish, you know what I'm saying? A lot of our, our, our coming together was, there was a little bit of unlearning for her, a little bit of unlearning for me, but then there was a lot of like really familiarity in sort of the way we do things. But like I said, like I grew up with like a more a Mexican American thing and even the region, the families I grew up with are from is a totally different region than she's from. They're city people, she's from Acapulco and her dad's from Mexico City. and people I grew up with were like Sinaloa, Chihuahua, Durango, which are like, they're like, that's like country, you know what I'm saying? So even, even when I try to speak Spanish, it's like, it's like learning English from somebody from Alabama. Like you have this just total like Southern draw and you're like, why are you, why are you talking like that? You know what I'm saying? So even when they listen to me talk, they're just like, 
it's, it's funny to them, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself like legitimately bicultural because of like the environment that I started off with and then sort of in our home, you know? Yeah. I love the way you celebrate it. I mean, it's, yeah, again, man. it's just one of those things, the, the way you present it, the way you, I think your hashtag for a while was Mexico Christmas, something like that. Uh, yeah, maybe. I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or I married a Latina, yeah, or yeah. like uh, Blacksican. Yeah. Blacksican. That's Blacksican for a while. Yeah. yeah. If I could, I'd frame your stretch marks. You only get them two ways. Giving birth or dropping weight. Either way, serious pain. She gets my pride. Uh, my bride. But before her, I thought my pride was my bride. The picture of endurance gave birth to a miracle. Them lines are memorials. Freedom from the torture. And pounds you put on were the defense mechanism. Like, maybe if I was ugly, then he would stop touching me. And you endured the teasing of a fat girl on a track team and kept running. Huh. You're tuned out to ridicule and every calorie burned were cause for celebration. Them lines of victory laps, eternal gold medals. When I see them, I'm reminded of freedom. I'm so proud of you. How could I ever question your strength or ever doubt you? And your struggles inspire its physical literature and the pain it gave life with the scars to prove it. If I could, I'd frame them. It isn't love if it doesn't hurt. If you don't feel it, then it doesn't work. The pain removes the scales, pulls back the veil. The Let's talk about your work a little bit. You know, you're, you roll in sort of two different worlds. Well, obviously they're related, but poetry and rap. Mm-hmm. Um, how different in terms of your approach, your process, are those two arts? Um, I'm such a, like, purist when it comes to hip-hop that, like, rap has, like, rap's got to rock the party. You know what I'm saying? And um, the type of, like, sort of hip-hop I came up with, it's either... It's either party or it's protest. Like that's the hip hop I fell in love with. You know what I'm saying? So like the, so I kind of make music that kind of like fits into that. So it's got to be catchy. You know what I'm saying? A little more be able to sing along. You know what I'm saying? Whereas poetry is something that's like that can cut and pierce and you know what I mean? And and it's to me it's more of a, a performed literature. Uh, so like the words have to do a little more work. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think, yeah, I, I definitely approach them as like two different tools, you know what I mean, in two different like art forms. But yeah, yeah, it's more of my allegiance to like what hip hop is that kind of really makes the two not mix. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So your process for the two of them, are they very, like very, yeah. very different? Yeah, very different because like with hip hop, like I'm worried about the track. Like the track is like, it's a marriage, you know what I mean, in between them. And then, you know, does, the of, track, does the track come first and you build it the lyrics? Varies, right? like, it yeah. could be either way, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but they have to marry. Like, I think that like when people say stuff like, you know, what's more important, the beat or the music? I think it's a dumb question. It's like, what's more important, the husband or the wife? Like you, you're, you're looking at this all wrong. You know what I'm saying? They are married and they both equally matter. You could prefer one or the other, but at the same time, like if you meet a couple and you're like, I like the dude, but like, I'm kind of, I don't know why it's kind of weird. It's like, well, fool, you don't love us. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if my wife is weird, it's like, you don't get to say that. You know what I'm saying, right? You know, so like, I I, uh, I think that, at least that's my approach to music. Like they, they, um, they're supposed to be complimentary. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Well, a bad lyric can ruin a great track. You know? Yeah. It, it can be. Yeah, just like a husband can put his foot in his mouth. Right. You know what I'm saying? At a party. You yeah. know, the poor wife is like, "Baby, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what my husband just said right now. He's such an idiot." You know? So talk, talk to me about the process for poetry then, and where does poetry emerge in your journey as an artist? I 
found poetry or spoken word because in college, and it's because I was chasing a girl, and uh, she was a poet, a little Filipino girl. She was a poet. I was following her. I was in college. I was a freshman. She was like a junior and heard me rap, heard the, like, the type of things I talked about in rap. And she's like, you'd probably be good at poetry. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. I'm a freshman, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah. So then they was throwing events, you know, out to school. And I went, was blown away at like the people's writing ability. Cause like you said, there's no music. There's no like, your words have to be amazing. So like, I was like, gosh, man, I want to write that good. So like it started off there, man. And just kind of like, and then just signing up for open mic list. There's so many spots in LA. There was, the two for me was a poetry lounge, but mostly it was a place called the Mike and Dim Lights. It's a city called Pomona. I was a regular, you know, I was there every week trying to get my chops up, you know what I'm saying? I'm not delusional, this most likely is your first experience with me. Greetings, my name is Propaganda. I wrote my first rap in 93, simply put. Fire-baptized battle rapper who's heavily influenced by folk music and found creative freedom in poetry. Combo is strange, I know, but let this one bake your noodle. I'm the son of a black panther with a Mexican spouse and Caucasian best friends. And my writing tone, now, one that offers you a neat little bow to tie all your little problems up with. I learned enough to know that I don't know that much. I know God became a man to save us, and we still can't explain pyramids. I know ancient Mayans and Egyptian astronomers had a far greater understanding of outer space than we do. I know academia is so drunk on arrogance and racism that they'd rather credit these accomplishments to aliens than to admit that we are not the smartest civilization to ever live. I know I really love my wife my daughter, and mangoes. And for some reason, folks find it illogical to think that a perfectly designed universe screams of a designer. I know sarcasm is really the only time people tell the truth. I know chilequiles and in and out will be served in heaven. I know it's a much better decision to shut your mouth when you don't know what you're talking about than to validate what everybody already thinks of you. I know color theory very well. I have a degree in illustration and intercultural studies and a teaching credential, yet I rap for a living. Let that sink in. Apparently, I don't know that much. I just know the gospel and good hip-hop. I'm a pretty simple dude. All I got is my all. And I promise to give you that. You know lower standards will lower the culture. So to talk to me about the process, where do you start? What does editing look like? Well, I never stop writing. It's like a constant, like, post-it notes, like, all the time all day, you know, you observe. I still have that like sociologist background. It's just your your ability to to see and observe. And it's, it's the same with illustration. It's the same with drawing. The strength of a painting is how well you're able to see, you know what I'm saying? And see what you're, what you're looking at and convey it. So like, it's the same with poetry. You just have to be a very good observer. And if you're observing well, you're always taking notes. So like poetry for me is like, I'm just always taking notes, you know? And then it's very rare the like, you know, lightning in a bottle where you can like nail it. You know what I'm saying? Even if you do nail it, I'm going to look at it in two days and be like, ah, I probably could have said that better. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, uh, the process for me is like I'm always kind of jotting down stuff and then readjusting. And then like I'm actually writing as I'm performing because like you'll perform it, you'll hear yourself. And then the crowd kind of helps when you're just like, I don't know if that phrase turned very well. So then you go back and redo it and Next time you perform it, you're like, yo, I'm going to add this phrase right here. You know what I'm saying? Or you think of it while you're standing on stage and like, oh, dude, I'm going to leave that. You know what I'm saying? Or this thing's getting long, cut that. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's like, it's constantly. I think it's one of the things that young artists have a real hard time grasping is, you know, the need to revise, the need to work it. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to Sandra McCracken one time, you know, she writes, Mm -hmm. she kind of does two worlds, like her singer-songwriter world, and then she writes these hymns for the church. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, she says, she says, I don't know if it's done until I get in front of an audience and try to get them to sing it. And if they can sing it, if they hear it and they can sing it right away, I know that thing works. Yeah. And if they don't, facts. yeah. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I didn't, this is a, this yeah. is a dud. Right. You know, right. or you, you can be like with poetry, you'd be in the middle of the poem and be like, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> right. This is dumb. Right. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. And then the, the temptation, I think, for a, lot of, for a lot of young artists is to go, I like it. You know, I just did this and I really like it. I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to. Yeah, know. I don't do poems that I haven't like sat on for yeah. like months. Yeah, that's yeah, great. I don't perform them yet. You know that's what I'm saying? Great. For the last few decades, there's been a tension for Christian artists between their role as prophetic voices in the culture and as voices speaking to the church. It's a tension that's fairly new. 50 or 60 years ago, someone like Flannery O'Connor or Walker Percy didn't have to think about whether or not their work could be published by Christian publishers or stocked in Christian bookstores. And for what it's worth, that probably made them better artists. It's hard to imagine Flannery O'Connor's work on bookshelves next to much of the world of Christian fiction. But that's probably another show for another day. For musicians, this tension shows up in several ways. For one, there are artists like Bob Dylan and U2 whose work explores explicitly Christian themes at times, but never really crosses over as a genre. There are people like Switchfoot or Sixpence None the Richer, or more recently, Lecrae, whose work started off in the Christian market and crossed over. I asked Prop how he sees himself amidst that tension and whether it influences his work at all. The binary, I think, cripples your pen. There are times that I'm talking to the church, for the church, you know what I'm saying? And there are times that I'm talking to the culture, you know what I'm saying? Um, I'm more of a, like, <laughs> flex, flexcatarian, you know what I'm saying? Like, where I'm like, man, it's in flux. Like, if I'm going to say I'm chasing the gospel, then I'm going to go where it's leading. That's not to say that I'm not being intentional in what I do, or I've never been the type to be like, you're doing it wrong. I've more been the type, like, that's cool. That's just not what I do. You know what I'm saying? Um, and this is why I do what I do. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, uh, I'm more of a like, man, more power to you. Just like, just as long as it doesn't suck. Like just, I don't care. Just don't make sucky music. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's the problem with me. I'm like, man, you could have these high and lofty, beautiful, like concepts of, of God that you're trying to articulate. But if you're just a whack rapper, I'm like, well, why don't you just kind of say those things? Why don't you just preach them? You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, but yeah, it's in flux, man. You know, I know what I'm best at, you know what I'm saying? And what I'm mo more happy doing, you know what I'm saying? Or where like my pen just kind of leads. But like, I think if you draw those lines, like, you know what I'm saying? I think you cheapen your message and the art. Like right. just be who right. you are, man, you know? I have a friend that's a producer. He goes to this big church in Nashville and he always has people coming up to him, handing him demos. And he's, the common line is like, man, God gave me this song. I want to give it to you. Oof. We'll see. And he, he says, the thing he always wants to say is, ah, you should probably give it back. Yeah. Lord gave you that? Oof. Yeah. Jesus need to work on his pen game. Jesus, Lord wrote that. Yeah. The pain that guides us, the strings that tie us, the coincidence that proves to us God's existence, joy we misplace, beautiful mistakes, huh? the scarlet thread, huh? the crimson cord. Oh, when your scars out loud, that's the fingerprints of the Lord, a crimson cord, baby, a crimson cord, a timeline, huh? a scarlet thread, huh? a crimson cord, baby, a crimson cord. Let me celebrate your crimson cord. One of the things I've noticed in, in your tracks, you kind of seem to have a gravity for these like these lopsided grooves, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're kind of broken up in, uh -huh. in cool ways. Yeah. What, what draws you to that? I like interesting music. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
It's not banger. It's not beautiful. It's not. It's interesting. You know what I'm saying? So to me, that's that's the stuff that draws me. I like things that kind of catch you off guard a little bit. Um, pulling from from other palettes. I think there's a part of me that's like a. Uh, basically, it's like if if everybody writes zigging, I want to zag. You know what I'm saying? So like, I look for the zag track. You know what I'm saying? So like, I just I enjoy the lefty. I enjoy the southpaw. I enjoy. You know what I'm saying? So like, that's just the type of stuff I like because I like I like the unpredictability and kind of like the uniqueness. Now, having said that, like I said, a lot of the the production credit really goes to Beautiful Eulogy and like the soundscaping of the squad to be like, you know. Cause I I don't there's certain like musical like rules of like sort of tone and key and stuff like that out just not my strength you know what I'm saying I'm just like I like it it sounds good and they're like well no actually the bass is off key I'm like what are you talking about bass is dope you know yeah yeah no I, I, it feels it feels to me like there's something unorthodox about a, a lot of the tracks and mm-hmm. and, a, and a, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, you've got a lot that are real straight ahead and rocking as uh-huh. well, but it's just caught my yeah. ears. I've, yeah, I enjoy stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the song "Beautiful," um, "Beautiful Pain." Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it up, them bruises are beautiful. These key ingredients are beautiful, like cheekbone birthmarks in the shapes of roses, or or third degree burns that retired firemen earn. What a privilege! Like auntie not embarrassed of her scars Proves that she's cancerless Breathless, but breathless huh, That's pain Like handcrafted scars A tapestry of bruises It's beautiful mutilation like branded and tattoos is. That's pain huh, Like like ancient pagan practices of scarification It damages skin horribly But then marks the mark royalty That's pain huh, Marred in a potter's hands That's pain All for purpose That song struck my wife and I both in a really profound oh, way. She's, yeah. she's uh, She suffers from rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. chronic pain, all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that song just expressed something that is incredibly hard to hear, yeah, um, yeah. but incredibly rich at the same time. Yeah. So I'd just love to hear where that came from. Yeah, man, it came from death. Yeah. It's just real simple, you know what I'm saying? Like trying to get my brain around like deaths of loved ones and people and the struggle and really trying to like get your brain around certain like doctrinal truths at the time I was like did somewhat of a pendulum swing as far as like my uh my understanding of like sort of apologetics and theology and like I started studying much more and really trying to get my brain around certain sort of doctrines it was around the time I found out one of my uncles was like this like rock star like theologian that I had no idea was related to me so once we started like comparing notes I was like crap dude you're brilliant you know what I'm saying so I was just trying to like jive a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing with the new things I was learning um problem of suffering you know what I mean the problem of pain you know what I'm saying and like how how that works you know what I mean in the world and how God doesn't like suffering as a tool in his tool belt and just like what does that mean well that means my pain is beautiful you know what I'm saying and um I had lost a sister she had a brain tumor, so she would have seizures. So one of my sisters passed. I had an aunt around the same time that passed away from cancer. You know what I'm saying? Just all these, like, just these things that we just live with. You know what I'm saying? And just trying to get my brain around, like, what's up with this? One of our, one of my friends, his wife, it's, it's been, I think it's been 11 years. She has a, she has MS and he, she's just slowly dying. You know what I mean? I went to, like, her, like, 
hospice care room and stood next to him while she can't, like she can't roll over, she can't talk, she can't move, she's in a bedpan and she's fed by a straw. I watched him renew his vows to her, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, that's, they don't teach you this in seminary. You know what I'm saying? So like that's, so that type of stuff, like you're, you're trying to make sense of like what you're reading in these books and then what you're seeing. And that's kind of where that poem kind of came from. Beautiful Pain is a great example of the topics that propaganda tackles. While one song might be a celebration of life on the streets in Southern California, another might try to tackle difficult doctrine. He's part of a movement that some have called Reformed Hip Hop, and it includes artists like Lecrae, Sho Baraka, Shylin, and Trip Lee, all of whom have serious chops as artists and serious minds when they talk theology. Have you always cared about theology? Has that always been a big deal to you? Um... Maybe, maybe unknowingly, the church experience for people of color is like theology isn't is is always context embedded. Theology's never been academic. It's always been where we live. So because of that, no one ever stopped to point at it and say, that's theology. You know what I'm saying? Or this is an apologetic. This is your doctrine of salvation. No one ever pointed at it. You know what I'm saying? Looking back. I just thought it was like loving good Bible teaching. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know that there was a name for it. Does that, does that make sense? Um, now, obviously, once I got a name for it, then I was able to like call it what it was. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so I'd say looking back, yeah, I just didn't know I did. You know what I'm saying? I actually found myself recently kind of returning to the way for which I saw theology at first. You know, when you start trying to understand things, you know, a little more academically, a little more... Uh, in a theologian sort of context, or like a, like I said, like in a classroom context, I started, I started seeing the letdown or the, the problem in not having a context embedded theology, the problem of just seeing it right here. And just, and it kind of fell along the lines of sort of like race relations to where I was like, you know, I found myself like dissing my uncle Coors Jean and, and CL, you know what I'm saying? Who like, you know, Greater Union Missionary Baptist Church in Compton, you know what I'm saying? Who for 45 minutes just stood on stood on stage and just sang, be holy, be ye holy for I am holy. You got to be holy. And then they sang four songs from the choir about holiness. And I'm just like, oh my God, can you get to the next thing? You know what I'm saying? But I mean, I say that, you know what I'm saying? Then you go to another church where they like, man, they telling you what holy means in Greek and in Hebrew and they parsing it and how it's pictured this and this and this and this. And I'm like, well, you still smashing the secretary. You still burning the secretary. You know what I'm saying? So like, you got all these words for what holy means. You know what I'm saying? And then I look back at my grandmother who got like a third grade education and that's the holiest woman. You know what I'm saying? That's the most righteous. She, I'll tell you what, she knew it up and down. You know what I'm saying? Because like, yeah, you if you have a room full of people that, you know, only have a sixth grade education, you know, you you slow down and you communicate truth through song, kind of like how we learned ABCs and everything else that we know in the world was communicated through song. You know what I'm saying? So like maybe maybe they was on to something. You know what I'm saying? So like I had to find myself kind of returning to that and just like in some ways like repenting in my heart to like, you know, my roots to be like, dog, man, maybe y'all did know what you was talking about. In 2012, Prop recorded a song called Precious Puritans. In it, he calls out the racial tension that exists for many African Americans in reformed circles, where the Puritans are often treated as heroes. If you would allow me a second to deal with some in-house issues here, hey pastor, you know it's hard for me when you quote Puritans. Oh, the precious Puritans. Have you not noticed our facial expressions? One of bewilderment and heartbreak, like not you too, pastor. You know they were chaplains on slave ships, right? Would you quote Columbus to Cherokees? 
Would you quote Cortez to Aztecs, even if they theology was good? It just sings the blind privilege, wouldn't you agree? Your precious Puritans. They looked my onyx and bronze skin forefathers in their face. Their polytheistic, God-hating face. Their shackled, diseased, imprisoned face. And taught a gospel that said that God had multiple images in mind when he created us in it. Therefore, destined salvation contains a contentment in the stage for which they were given, which is to be owned by your forefathers. Superior image-bearing face, says your precious Puritans. And my anger towards this teaching screams of an immature doctrine and a misunderstanding of the gospel. I should be content in this stage, right? Isn't that what Paul taught? According to your precious Puritans. It feels like that came from, obviously came from a real place, Absolutely. like a real experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested, were you surprised by the amount of backlash online from nah. kind of reformed bloggers and stuff? I was more surprised that they knew who I was. The content, it was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm talking about an idol. So of course you're gonna like, <laughs> of course you're gonna push back. It was the surprising thing to me was like, how did I even get on your radar? And why do I matter enough that you to write these things? Like, what are you so worried about? You know what I mean? Which almost was like, dang, I rest my case. Like, why you even care? You know what I'm saying? But if we celebrate that rather than act like it ain't there, I get it. Your Puritans got it, but come the things the Holy Spirit showed them in the valley of vision didn't compel them to knock on their neighbor's door and say you can't own people your precious Puritans were not perfect you romanticized them as if they were inerrant as if the skeletons in their closet was pardoned due to their hard work and tobacco growth as if abolitionists were not racist and just pro-union as if God only spoke to white boys with epic beards at the time the sort of blogosphere wasn't aware of like the poetry sort of genre to even understand how poetry works to where it's like well you're you're kind of missing the point like you're hanging your your whole argument is hanging on actually the cocking of the hammer this is not even the hammer drop the hammer drop is that i'm just as wretched that's the point of the song you know what i'm saying and i'm like well you don't even get the genre you know what i'm saying so i don't even know what you're arguing about but now that you mentioned it maybe i'm right you know what i'm saying Aaron's, trust me i know the feeling same feeling I get when people quote me like if they only knew. See, I get it, but I don't get it. <laughs> Ask my wife. And it bothers me when you quote Puritans, if I'm honest. For the same reason it bothers me when people quote me, they precious propaganda. So I guess it's true that God really does use crooked sticks to make straight lines, just like your precious Puritans. Do you feel like it accomplished what you wanted to accomplish? Absolutely. By, by sparking all that conversation? Absolutely. And, yeah. I, I, I've seen that. Like, I, I mean, I can't, like, I can't really boast in, like, the fullness of this, but I, at least from my perspective, it seems as though, like, that started a good amount of conversations that I feel like are being continued on now. You know what I'm saying? You know, if, if you had to sort of imagine, not, not in terms of like record sales and, and tickets and all this kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. in, in a few years, like what do, you, what do you hope that you've accomplished? Like what do you want to contribute man. to the cultural conversation? Man, I actually think about this often, man. I think that like, I compare it to like the five talents ter- parable. Yeah, you know, the, the, the owner hands you some talents and says, I just need you to work these. You know what I'm saying? If you'd asked me five years ago, I probably would have had like a more specific, kind of answer to it. But I think that like the more I've grown and the more I've lived, the more I'm like, man, you know, who knows what the harvest is going to look like? You know what I'm saying? I just know I'm going to be 
diligent in working the field he gave me, you know what I'm saying? And working the talents he gave me. And, you know, obviously I speak on a lot of like racial and cultural and social issues. So I would hope that like we'd see change there, but I'm like, fam, like it's been 300 years, like your albums, you know, it's not like I'm going to end institutionalized racism on my next record. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to happen, you know, but I can move the needle. You know what I'm saying? And it seems like a lot's happened in the last three yeah. or four years. I mean, evangelicals are hopefully waking up more yeah, and yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, you know what I mean? I would hope that there, but like, really, it's more like, I just want when the father comes back to be like, would you do with my two talent? Maybe I didn't have five. Maybe I only got two. You know what I'm saying? Like, would you do with my two? I'm like, yo, I worked the hell out of the two talents you gave me. You know what I'm saying? There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. You can find links to Propaganda's music, his tour schedule, and more in our show notes. Thanks for listening today. Hey, if you like what's happening here at Cultivated, help us spread the word online, fill out a review in the iTunes store, and if you really want to help, go to harbormedia.com slash donate and chip in a few bucks. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks to all the folks at Humble Beast, to Propaganda, to Paul Barger, to Thomas Terry, and to Ryan Lister at Western Seminary for making this episode happen. Our administrator is Daniela Rueda. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our logos were designed by Chris Bennett. The rest of the songs you heard today, as you may have guessed, were by Propaganda. We'll be back next week with another episode where we are hosting Vox.com's film critic, Alyssa Wilkinson. God's Not Dead, for instance, as a film or as a franchise, as it's becoming, the God's Not Dead cinematic universe. In that cinematic universe, um, atheists are hateful, always. Christians are not, always. And, um, you know, in the first film, spoiler alert, they literally kill the antagonist at the end of the film. It's like a revenge fantasy. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one either. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.